morning. I'm Gordon Cheeseman, and I have a reading from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Oh, thank you very much, Gordon. <clears throat> well, as you can probably hear, my, my voice isn't doing so great. Uh, so you're going to have to bear with me. Between, uh, between the condition of my throat and the cold medicine, you may be in for a, a bumpy ride here. <laughs> so as Gordon said in our verse, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. And I don't know if there's a verse that is better medicine for the age of anxiety that we find ourselves living in. There is a lot to trouble our hearts, and God knows that we are prone to fear. Now, I've heard it said that it, it says the, the phrase, do not be afraid in the Bible, 365 times. That's once for each day of the year. And I didn't take the time to count it myself, but when I did a quick internet search to verify, I started typing in, how many times does God say, and the search bar just completed the thought, the thought for me. And I don't know how search algorithms work, but apparently I'm not the first one to Google this kind of thing. We are still looking to God for how to deal with fear and worry. And if we who know the Lord still need help finding peace, just think about those who don't know the Lord and how much help they need. Now, I was thinking about how do people who don't know a sovereign and loving God deal with worry, how do they find peace for their troubled hearts? And this is a little silly, but the first thing that came to mind was a, a song from the 80s. It was called, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Remember that? <laughs> how could you forget it? I think it got played twice an hour, every hour, for about a year. Um, now, the song, it had some real simple instruction for how to deal with worry, and Essentially, it just amounts to making a choice to be happy instead of worrying. And I've never actually met a person who could just simply make a choice to be happy. 
And maybe they're out there, but for those of us who need reasons to not worry, I can pass along some of those reasons that Jesus gave his disciples at the Last Supper to let not your hearts be troubled. Now, the disciples, they had a lot to trouble their hearts. Jesus had just told them, one of you is going to betray me. And he tells Peter, you won't even make it through the night without denying me three times. And then Jesus, this man that they had left everything to follow, Jesus tells them, I'm leaving and you can't follow. You can't go where I'm going. And this is where we pick up our text today. At the outset of chapter 14, Jesus continues to speak to his disciples in this tender, fatherly tone. He's addressing them as little children, like it said in our verse last week. Now, these are like little kids. They're looking to him for peace and security, and his heart is breaking for them, thinking about what they will uh, need to endure in his absence when he goes away. Now, the situation of the disciples, it's unique. They were with Jesus physically, and each of them would suffer greatly when he went away. Now, we don't have to face the same situation the disciples went through. We don't have to say goodbye to Jesus like they did. But the encouragement to let not our hearts be troubled, it applies to us today. Because God gives the disciples all the grace that they need to go through what they needed to go through while Jesus was away. And God gives us the grace that we need to face all that we need to go through until we are united with Jesus. So when we walk in his will for our lives, he'll meet us on that path. He'll give us grace and peace, no matter how difficult the path is that he's calling us to. This is what he did with his disciples and the way that they lived their lives and the way that they died testifies to the fact that Jesus came through. He gave them the peace they needed to not fall apart when they faced all the trials they were called to walk through. Now, the disciples, they were all cruelly martyred with the exception of John who died in exile. And Jesus, he knew what was in store for them and he knew that they would need peace. So what does Jesus tell them? Does he say, don't worry, be happy? No, essentially Jesus, he tells them, don't worry, believe. So the other side of happiness, the other, I'm sorry, the other side of worry is not happiness. The, the antidote to worry is belief. In John 14, 1, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus sets up this explanation of why his disciples should not let their hearts be troubled with this exhortation to believe. And the phrasing of it, it may strike some of us as strange. It's a sentence that seems to imply that Jesus and God are not one. And that flies in the face of one of Christianity's core beliefs, the belief that Jesus is God incarnate. So why would Jesus phrase it this way? Now, personally, I think that the strange phrasing here selected by Jesus is to bring to the surface and to correct some misunderstandings on the part of the disciples about who exactly Jesus is. In verse 8, after Philip hears Jesus' words, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And in verse 9, Jesus sets him straight. He says, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? It's like he's saying, Phil, were you not paying attention back in chapter 10, verse 8, when I said, I and the Father are one? Remember that time I almost got stoned to death for saying it? Uh, easy to forget, Phil, I know. 
But still, Jesus reminds us again here in verses 14, 9b, and 10. He says, whoever has seen the Father has seen me. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So with this explanation, with, this, with these statements, Jesus begins to explain to the disciples why they should not let their hearts be troubled by telling Philip and by telling us that he is one with God. And wrapped up with that fact is the reassurance that Jesus has all the ability of God the Father. He has all the power of God the Father. He has all the resources of God the Father. And so Jesus, he uses Philip's confusion as an occasion to remind us that the words of God the Son carry the same weight, the same sovereignty as God the Father's. And so we have every reason to trust, every reason to believe the words of Jesus. They are the words of God. And God doesn't waste words. He doesn't just say things into the air that have no effect. No, the words that he speaks accomplish their purpose. And the words he chooses for today, the words he speaks to us, are let not your hearts be troubled. Now that's God's message to us. I'm going to borrow the words of Max Licato here to drive the point home. He says, This much is sure. It is not God's will that you leave a life of perpetual anxiety. It is not his will that you face every day with dread and trepidation. He made you for more than a a life of breath-stealing angst and mind-splitting worry. He has a new chapter for your life, and he is ready to write it. So here's what Jesus says. Here's what God expects to happen. When he gives you reasons why your heart should not be troubled from his word, he expects you to believe what he is saying, regardless of how you feel, regardless of whether or not you think it's going to make a difference in your troubled heart. Take what he is about to offer in faith. And if you do, the Holy Spirit, it will apply it to your life and the storms of your heart will begin to subside. And in our text today, the first thing Jesus reassures his disciples with is to speak to them about his father's house, which is heaven. He reassures them by reminding them about their heavenly future. Verse two, it says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, when we hear the phrase, go to prepare a place for you, it's easy to imagine this home that's under construction. Like, Heaven isn't quite ready yet, but I don't think that's the case. In fact, no, I know it's not the case. Because in Matthew twenty-five thirty-four, we read, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this is a kingdom prepared, past tense, for you from the foundation of the world. So the preparation that's needed, it's not some last-minute construction. Now, Jesus, he was a carpenter while he was here on this earth, but he doesn't need to go do some touch-up work on your place in heaven with some hammer and nails. That's not what he is going to prepare. Heaven is not lacking anything. But a hammer and a nails, it is involved in the preparation work that Jesus is going to do. When Jesus tells them that he is going to prepare a place for them, He's talking about what is going to occur the very next day. He is going to take the hammer and the nails that will fasten him to the cross. That's the preparation work that Jesus is going to do. 
the only work on your heavenly home yet to be done when Jesus spoke these words is that your heavenly home needs an entry point. It needs a door. It's closed tight. And we as sinners, we have no access to it. Our sin is what separates us from God and it's what separates us from our heavenly home. But God, in his love, he makes a way. And the forgiveness that is found in the cross, that's the bridge that ends the separation between sinful man and a holy God. And when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus is saying, I'm going to make a way for you on the cross. I am going to fulfill all the messianic prophecy, completing the truth of God's word that you anchored your hope to. I am going to defeat death once and for all, and you will be able to share in that resurrection life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And unless Jesus goes to prepare a path to heaven on the cross, there is no way to heaven. There is no truth of a Savior, and there is no life of a resurrection for us anywhere. But it is done. The work is completed. The work is finished on your behalf. The Son of God himself completed the work, and the door to your room in heaven is open. The way is prepared. The work is finished. We can trust Jesus because he is God. And therefore, as Jesus says, believe it. This is the first why of Jesus telling us to let our hearts not be troubled. He's reminding us that come what may on this earth, we've got access to heaven. And this is a comfort when we remember that there is so much more than just our time here on earth. We have an eternity in heaven to look forward to. And next, Jesus, he wants us to know what we will find when we get to heaven. Because what is waiting for us there is more medicine for our anxious hearts. Now, like I said, the preparation work that Jesus is going to do is the cross. It's not some last minute customizing of your place in heaven. God knew you before the foundation of the world, and he still knows us. God knows our temperaments. He knows our personalities. He knows our likes and our dislikes better than we even know ourselves because he made us. Now, earlier in the book of John, we talked about how Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, remember how the the good shepherd, he knows each of his sheep? Well, the same one who cares for us in the wilderness of this fallen and corrupted world, he is the same one who has gone to prepare a perfect heavenly place for you. And if he knows how to care for us in this broken and sin-filled world, just think about how much better, how much more complete the care for us will be when we leave this fallen world behind and we're removed from the presence and the effects of sin and we get to step into our heavenly home. And this is not some generic townhouse that's identical to the one right next to it. He's prepared a place for you according to the way he made you. So you can be comforted by that fact because you've got that to look forward to. Let your hearts not be troubled because we have an incredible place in heaven to look forward to. So again, no matter what happens in the in-between, no matter what is troubling you now, Jesus prepares a way for us to reach heaven. And now we can add to that the knowledge that we'll have a space that is special and unique to us. And the reality of these things, it's a guard for our troubled hearts. So I want to challenge you. 
just like his disciples were challenged by Jesus. Believe it. I'm going to ask, is heaven real to you? Is one of the core beliefs of your life the surety that heaven is waiting for you? It needs to be. Because if it isn't, then... Excuse me. The sure belief that heaven exists needs to be one of your core beliefs because if you don't, your life will be plagued by anxiety. You need to know that it all ends well to face the uncertainty of this life. Now, you've probably heard of some of those books where somebody dies, they get to go to heaven and somehow miraculously they they come back to life and they get to share how awesome their experience was. Well, I'm going to share one of those stories with you today, and I'm also going to encourage you to get a copy of this book and read it for yourself. Now, the book is 2 Corinthians. So, no, we don't need another... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pastor Brent's breathing a sigh of relief. I'm not going (laughs) to... I'm not going to recommend some some crackpot book. (laughs) No, no, we don't need another book to tell us that heaven is real. God already gave us one. Heaven was real to Paul, and God, the Holy Spirit, he inspired Paul to record an account of it. And before I read about what Paul said, it should be be noted that Jewish rabbis, for they had this custom of speaking about themselves in the third person when sharing experiences they had. So when Paul says... I knew a guy. He's talking about himself. Now, I don't know why they did this. It was just a literary function of Paul's day. All right, so listen to what he says. This is from 2 Corinthians. I know a man in Christ, who again is Paul, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So Paul experienced things. Paul saw things in heaven that he cannot even relate to us. They were beyond his capacity to articulate, and they're beyond our ability to understand it. So from our earthly perspective, we can't fully appreciate heaven, not even close, because basically our our attempts at daydreaming about what heaven is like, it's essentially just a sinful mind reimagining the best we've seen in a fallen creation. Now, in other words, our ability to comprehend heaven, it's limited by our low perspective, and it's diminished by the limited creativity of our human minds. We just can't comprehend how awesome heaven really is. But what we can understand is that heaven is far, far, far better than even our wildest dreams of it. And the reason I'm sharing this, the reason I'm mentioning it, the, the, uh, the connection to the words, let not your hearts be troubled, is because Paul, the one who suffered more than most, the one who had plenty of reasons to let his heart be troubled, he saw heaven. He saw the Father's mansion with many rooms. And because he knew that heaven was waiting for him, Paul was able to endure all the difficulties that God was calling him to. And he did some serious difficulties. It says in Acts 20, 22, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, 
except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, Paul, he received 39 lashes on five different occasions. He was beaten with rods on three. His back would have been this tangled mess of scars. And Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. And as he's sitting in prison, waiting for Emperor Nero and the Romans to have his way for them, Paul, out of concern for his new church's state of mind when they have to face troubles of their own, he writes the words of Philippians 4.6 from his jail cell. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, that's another sermon in itself, but the reason I mention it here today is to say that Paul knew from his vision of heaven that God had already granted him a place there. And Paul also knew that God would grant him all the grace that he needs to get there. Paul, in a sense, he saw the last page of this chapter, and he saw that despite all the hard things that he had to face, it ends well, because he knows it ends in the Father's house. So he didn't have to walk around with anxiety, and he didn't want his church to walk around with anxiety either. He knew what was waiting for him, and Jesus wants his disciples to know what is waiting for them, and he wants, to, and he wants you to know that there is an eternal home waiting for you. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, heaven's described as a kingdom. It's described as an inheritance. It's described as a country and a city. But back in John, we find the most intimate description of heaven. Now, Jesus describes it as a home. Now, a heavenly home, it brings to mind care, comfort, and security. And these things are remedies for anxiety. And hopefully, you've had a taste of that in your earthly home now. And if you haven't experienced it in your life, I don't have to tell you that there, there may be this deep, driving desire to find security that is lacking. And if that describes you, if you don't come from a happy home, that's a heavy burden to bear. But sooner or later... Everyone, whether you come from a good home or not, has to wrestle with the fact that the benefits of a good home can only go so far when it comes to peace and security. You know, if you live long enough here on this earth, your security is going to be shaken because God, God has something better to offer you. God doesn't want you to put down your roots too deeply here on earth. He wants you to look forward to heaven. And we know from Hebrews 13, 14, about where our hope should lie. It says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So no matter what your earthly experience is with home, all believers, all who enter heaven because of the cleansing sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, we are going to find the security that we seek in heaven, in the place that Jesus will bring us to. So hold on to that hope. When you wake up in the middle of the night, troubled by anxious thoughts, replace them with the belief that come what may, things end eternally well for you in heaven. But for the unbeliever, thoughts of your eternal home, it should be a source of unease. It should be a source of anxiety, to put it mildly. Now, there's no worse fate than I can imagine than to realize that the door has closed. 
that the offer to be with your heavenly Father in the place of eternal security has gone ignored. And then to realize that there is nothing left but utter eternal hopelessness. This is what the Bible calls utter darkness. The place where Jesus says in Mark 9, 48, that the fire is not quenched and their worm does not die. Now, I would much, much, much rather talk about the wonders of heaven than the horrors of hell, but hell is real. And the offer of salvation, it becomes even sweeter when we have a better grasp of what is in store for the condemned. Now, in in Mark 9, 48, Jesus calls the worm their worm. So he's not talking about just hellish worms in general. This is a, a personal undying worm that's attached to its host, providing eternal torment. There is going to be agony beyond imagining. And it's not just physical torment, but also the realization that you are completely cut off from God with no way to the Father's house. This is the eternal home for those that die in their sins. But praise God, Jesus did everything needed to deliver us from the horrors of hell and instead deliver us to heaven. Jesus, he's the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't simply point the way. He is the way. He is at the fork of the road. One path leading to the Father in heaven and all other paths leading to hell. Now, he's the only way because he is the only sinless one who died in payment for our sin. There is no one else qualified to forgive us. He is the only path to heaven and he is the only one who can carry us there. And this is exactly what he does. Now, back to our text in John 14, verse 3. He says, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So we've been talking about the way that is prepared for us on the cross, that the heavenly home that is waiting. But what is even more important is who we will dwell with. Jesus says, where I am, you may be also. The company that we keep in the Father's house is going to change us. And this is a, a life-transforming truth. The, we, we see it play out in smaller ways here on earth. Like, I'm a better person for having shared a, a home with my wife and my kids. I've grown in the company of you and, and believers. And God uses other people as a means of sanctification, as a means of bringing about spiritual growth. And as we learn from each other and as we do life together, if we're living in obedience, we show others and we get to see in others the character of Christ. And we grow. This is the transformation that God the Holy Spirit works in us now while Jesus isn't with us bodily. And when Jesus comes and takes you to the Father's house, when this sinful world is left behind, when this sinful flesh is left behind, and we fully behold the glory of God, face-to-face, our transformation is going to be complete. John, he writes about this again in 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. To me, this is the most beautiful and captivating thought that I've ever entertained we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And for now, the, the full revelation of the glory of God is too much 
for sinful humanity to bear. Now, back in Exodus, Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God says, no man can look upon my face and live. We can't look on God's face because sin can't stand in the presence of holiness. But Jesus, he dealt with the sin part. Now we can stand in the Father's presence. We can behold his face, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, but because Jesus has cleansed us. And when we are with him in heaven, we shall be made like him. You ever wish you could be holier? You will. Ever wish you could be better? You will. Ever wish you could stop sinning once and for all? You will. Ever wish you could be renewed, transformed, made new into the, the person that, that a good and perfect father created you to be? You will. This is certain for the believer. So let not your hearts be troubled because that day is coming. Sure as the sun rises, we will look on the blazing glory of God and anything that is not of him will be burned away forever. And even though Jesus told his disciples that he will bring them to the Father's house himself, it still hasn't quite landed with them. It still hasn't connected. Thomas is still confused. He wants to make sure he knows absolutely how to get to the Father's house. So in verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And even though Jesus already answered the question, he makes sure we don't miss how to get there. And Jesus has to repeat himself constantly. He says the same thing from different angles just to make sure that it connects. So I don't mind repeating this important truth here either. In verse 6, Jesus answers Thomas. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I think that Thomas, he still thought that the path to heaven was one he could walk himself, even though Jesus told him that he would take him there. So Jesus restates that the only path to the Father's house, even clearer, he says, I am the way. Now, whether we hope in some other Savior or if we think we can walk up the path to heaven ourselves, it's a false hope. The work has been entirely covered by Jesus Christ, except for one key word. It's believe. Jesus says, believe. Believe in God the Father. Believe in God the Son also. Believe that he went to the cross for you and believe that he will take you to heaven and there you will be transformed. Believe and the certain hope for your future will quiet your anxious hearts. Now, in the talk between Jesus and his disciples, it's like Jesus turns with them to the last page of the chapter. He says, look, see, I am going to get you through this life. You're going to pass through the fire, but look, it ends well. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, admittedly, today we, we spent all our time talking about what is waiting for us down the road. But if we read ahead in the book of John, Jesus gives his disciples another reason for peace a reason that is with us here and now. Now, next week, we're going to hear from Pastor Gary about this source of peace. It's God, the Holy Spirit, the one who Jesus asks the Father to send. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all working in concert for the sake of our peace in the absence of Jesus. Now, 
the Holy Spirit, he's here with us in this room. And God, the Holy Spirit, is also with us when we're lying awake in the middle of the night, struggling with our anxious thoughts. And as we go about our weeks, let's trust that the Holy Spirit will do exactly as Jesus says in next week's verse. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all the things that I have told you. So his word, it's not just for Sunday mornings. His word is living and active, and it can be applied to our troubled hearts every moment of our week. And I've been praying that we are all open to the work that the word and the spirit will do this week. And next week will not only be part two of let not your hearts be troubled, but it'll be a celebration of the work that the Lord is already doing as we grow to find peace and provision in the promises of God. And as the worship team, as they make their way back up front, let me remind you that our minds cannot be full of fear when they are full of God. Now, this is one of the reasons we feel so refreshed by worship. The light of truth in God's word, they, they just melt away all our worry when we sing these truths and when we fix our hearts and minds on him in praise. And so as we get ready to sing, let's prepare ourselves for just a little glimpse of heaven, just a taste of what it will be like when we enter his presence for all eternity that time when his amazing grace silences our fears and calms our troubled hearts once and for all. Let's pray together. Lord, it says in your word that the amazing things that Jesus does, they're recorded here for us in the Bible so that we may believe, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through that belief we would have life in his name. Lord, we, we do believe, but broken as we are by sin, we can't believe as we should. So, Lord, help us in our unbelief. God, you've, you've shown your sovereign might over all things, even over death itself. So, Lord, what do we have to worry about? God, we, we thank you for the reasons you give us to not worry. Thank you for the provision of Christ on the cross. Thank you that you're with us now by the Holy Spirit and thank you for the reminder of what we have to look forward to. A future to which we can anchor our hope to through these stormy seas. And God, thank you for the promise that you will come and take us to yourself, that we will be complete, restored, made new in your presence as we look on your face with nothing left to ever trouble our hearts again. Lord, until we see you face to face, give us the grace that we need to live for you. Lord, I'm, I'm not asking that we would lead lives free of trouble, but I'm asking, like Paul, that you would give us the grace that we need to live for you despite the trials we face. And like Paul, that we would be able to share that message of peace with others who so desperately need it.